0: On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant Vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music music teachers. You're listening to the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton. And in this episode, we're looking at the top, most interesting findings from the 2020 Vibrant Music Teaching Industry Report. Hey there, beautiful teachers. So each year at Vibrant Music Teaching, we do a special report that we compile from data about the music industry as a whole, and we get this data from you guys. So thank you so much, first of all, but before I even look at the results from the survey that we did, thank you to all of you who filled in the survey and contributed towards this. This truly is a group effort. We could not do it without you. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to go through some of my top findings from this year's report, what I think was most interesting about it. What we aim to do with these reports is to give you an overview of how the industry is going, how people are teaching, how much they're making, and all things that us music teachers are interested in. So this is specifically about instrumental and vocal teachers, although we get primarily Piano teachers responding to the survey. So it does reflect that. However, I'm hoping that we'll continue to expand that and make it an even broader reach and broader base of different types of music teachers in the future. This was our second year doing this report and we more than doubled our numbers of respondents, which is really, really wonderful. So we had, let me see, we had 1,059 respondents this year from 31 different countries, which is just fantastic. Of course, I want to keep making that broader and broader and bigger and bigger every year. But for our second year, I am thrilled with that result. This survey was run during September to October 2020. And so we did include a special section about the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on teaching. We didn't make that a huge focus of the survey because we definitely want this to reflect much broader things that are going on in the industry and more longer term trends. But we absolutely wanted to show that aspect of 2020 and the impact that it had on music teaching studios, on the studios of the teachers that we surveyed. So we split this Report up into several sections. And before I even dive into any of the results that I found most interesting, I want to make sure that you know where to get your hands on it because you might draw different things from these numbers, right? I've tried my best in the report to pull out the most interesting findings, but you may notice some other correlation and think, hmm, I wonder what that means for me, or any other aspect that's interesting to you. So the report is absolutely awesome. It's almost 30 pages, but it is not overwhelming. It is full of beautiful grand, and well-presented data and little asides from us at the team to give you some insight into what these numbers might mean for you. So if you want to get that report, you can go to colorfulkeysie slash report and you'll find a place to download it right there on the page, as well as some more summaries of what we got out of this year's survey, what we learned from it, and what we think you can learn too. So that's colorfulkeys.ie slash report. Or if you're a member of Vibrant Music Teaching, you can just grab it right within the printable library. It'll be up the top if you're listening to this as soon as it goes out or shortly thereafter. What did we learn though? Well, let's start with the basics about who these teachers are. So these teachers were from all over the world, for sure, but we had our largest portion of teachers in the US, which is as we expected. So about 55% of our respondents were from the US. The next largest group were from Canada and the UK and Australia, and those are all relatively equal with each other, with Canada being the, the largest of those groups, which is awesome. Love having the Canadian representation in there. And then we have other countries, which I realize is very broad, but we're really talking about a few people here, a few people there, literally all over the world. So from Ghana to Germany, that is representing all of those different countries, and breaking them down would make that chart overwhelming. Then about how long the teachers were actually teaching. So these teachers, we had a really broad spectrum here, and I was delighted to see that. I don't want these reports to just reflect those who are further along in their teaching journey. I want to get those teachers, capture the data of those teachers, and the experiences of those teachers who are right at the start as well. And it was great to see that split being pretty even. So we've got 0 to 5 years, 11 to 20 years of teaching, 6 to 10 years of teaching. Those are all around 20%. And then we have a larger portion, almost 40%, at 21 plus years of teaching. Aren't those teachers fantastic? In future surveys, we're definitely gonna break that down further. So we'll probably have an extra bracket there just to really break it down and show how many teachers are, you know, into their 30 plus years of teaching so that we can see where everybody is at. A new area that we asked about this year was the qualifications which was really interesting to see. The reason that I asked about qualifications was because this is a big part of imposter syndrome, basically, for a lot of teachers, including me, when I started and well into several years of teaching. I do not have a degree in music or education. I have a degree in fashion design, which is, you know, not particularly relevant although it does come in very handy much of the time, it's not particularly aligned with what I do with piano teaching. And I hear from many, many teachers who either realise that's the case for me or don't realise that and assume I have a pedagogy degree, even though I'm very upfront about it. They just might have not seen that about me. And they get in touch and say, but I don't have this and I don't have that and I feel so like I'm missing out on something. and. Yeah, we are missing out on something. If we miss that aspect, of course we're missing out on something. We don't have that experience under our our belt. But we probably have other things. I mean, I have a diploma in teaching, so it's not like I'm unqualified. But even if you don't have a piece of paper, that doesn't mean you don't have valuable experience. It doesn't mean you're not a great teacher. It just means that you've come at this from a different route. And so that's why I wanted to ask this question this year. And it's great to see those statistics come back. So we were at almost 60% who did have a degree in music or education. That's the way I asked it. So that if people went into say, primary school education and then ended up teaching piano on the side, we reflected that because that is very relevant. And then we had about 20% who have a diploma or certificate, like me, I'm in that group. And then we had 20% with no formal teaching qualification. So if you're sitting there thinking, I don't have a degree, I don't have a diploma, you're with 20% of our survey respondents. You're not alone. 20%, a fifth of people. That is not a small number. And yeah, you can go and seek out further education if you want in various different ways. And that might come with a piece of paper. But know that you are not on your own if that's where you're at. And that's perfectly fine. And you should be accepted. And if anyone comes at you and says, oh, you need a degree, or, you know, you should know this, that, and the other because of your degree, just move along. Just ignore them. Seriously, absolutely embrace education. Absolutely learn as much as you possibly can. But there are so many different routes to do that. And having that piece of paper, that four years, still leaves people with many areas that they feel insecure about. Teachers who have a degree will often come to me and say, Oh, they didn't cover this in my degree, and they didn't cover that in my degree, and everyone else seems to know about it. So everyone feels that way, and you are not alone. The next thing I asked about, which was also new, was about the parents' musical background. This is something I started looking at when I started preparing my talk about inclusive piano teaching for the piano pivot in Australia. That was the conference held by my friend Tim Topham. I went over to Australia for that, as well as a few other events. It was absolutely wonderful, and I can't believe that was 2020. (laughs) That was at the start of this year, before we all entered a global pandemic. So, at that, I gave this presentation about inclusive piano teaching. And one of the things I asked the room about in this presentation, and I've continued to do so when I talk about this topic, is how many teachers here had parents who studied a music instrument? How many teachers here had parents who were enthusiasts and took you to concerts and things like that when you were growing up? And I've found, anecdotally, because that's just a room of teachers, right? Just through hands-up things, i found that most of us do have some kind of experience like that under our belts with our parents. And so I wanted to get the data on that. And I was really interested to see that over 20% had parents who had no musical experience or nothing formal, nothing in the realm, a relevant way. So that was higher actually than I was expecting. And I think that's a good thing because we want to be spreading outside of just people with a musical background. We want to be accessible and that's great. It's still not as high as I'd like it to be because... We need to be broadening our reach and our appeal, in my opinion. But it was great to see, at least that was at 20%. About 30% said that their parents had some lessons growing up. And then 10%, which is actually higher than I thought as well, said that their parents were professional musicians. So one in 10 of teachers have parents who are professional musicians. That's pretty high when you consider the number of professional musicians, right? It does run in the family, in other words. About 15% were active amateur musicians. So they were still playing regularly in whatever capacity in bands or with friends or whatever. And then about 20% were enthusiasts, which we explained was, you know, taking you to concerts, really appreciating music in a deep way, that kind of thing. So that was really interesting to get back. And I'm really looking forward to having that data as we track it over the years, because it'll mean more and more the more times we enter these things. One of the great things about this year was that we had last year's to refer to so we can see whether is that consistent, is it the same result again for the same types of questions or the exact same questions so that that data becomes more and more reliable as a result over time which is great. So I'm looking forward to that for this particular aspect as well. Another new area we asked about was the personal practice of the teachers and I think this is maybe lower then teachers who spend a lot of time in Facebook groups will be expecting it to be. So there maybe is a perception out there, at least I think there is, that all teachers are actually performing musicians or all teachers are practicing really, really well. that they're up to a certain level of practicing. And we should strive for that, I'm not saying we shouldn't. But, you know, life is busy and things are hard to fit in. And so about let me see almost 50% were under 2 hours of practice per week. So if we're expecting our students to practice 30 minutes a day 5 days a week, they are going to be over the average practice for about half of teachers in our survey. Then we have about 3 to 5 hours was around 20% and then 6 plus hours So more than an hour a day, we're looking at just over 10% for that. That was really interesting to me. I did expect those numbers to be higher, not because my personal practice habits are outstanding, but because of that um, general perception that comes across in things like Facebook groups. I don't know if you feel that too. That's the way I kind of saw it. And I thought we would see higher numbers there. So that was really interesting. And maybe as a lesson in cutting some of our students some slack too, right? Because if this is our job and we can't fit it in, we need to understand how hard it is for them too. Okay, then one area that had been specially requested by people who read last year's report was information about Music Teacher Association membership. I heard this from a few places and it was really great to get that feedback. So I want to encourage you that if you have an area that I've not looked at, We will absolutely be open to maybe including it next year. It does depend on prioritizing things, of course. But if there's something that you would like to see us include that we haven't reported on, let us know. Tell us about it. Just email us, support at colourfulkeys.ie. We'd love to hear your ideas. Now, this one came from feedback, and it was great to get because it wouldn't have occurred to me to ask about Music Teacher Association membership, or at least it would have been hard for it to occur to me, Because we don't have them here. I mean, we have EPTA, which is the European Piano Teachers Association, but it's not that popular in Ireland. It's not that big. And we don't have more than that. That's it. And we don't have national, right? We don't have an Irish one. It's just a portion of the European Piano Teachers Association. And again, that's PT, right? It's piano teachers and not music teachers. So this was a really interesting area to look at. And we broke it down in the report by country or area. So we've got the US, Canada, Australia, UK, and then other countries. And I know that's so broad, but that's the way we have to break it down at the moment. The more people that respond from those countries, the more we'll be able to represent them. You know, I would love to have a European representation there, but there just isn't the data to support it at this stage. So anyway, it still was very interesting to see. How many participate at the local and national level? I think that's one that's going to be more interesting for you to look at yourself based on your local area, right? But I was surprised maybe at how high it was in the UK. So I would like to highlight that. I didn't realize it would be that high in the UK. I'd say part of that is that I think they roll in insurance, which is one of the reasons why I think the participation is maybe lower in Ireland. Is we don't get insurance rolled in, and it's a bit of a no brainer, I think, in the UK to be part of EPTA in particular because they roll in that insurance. So that's an interesting aspect to look at. Moving on, then, that's all about the teachers. How about the people we teach and how we teach them? First question we asked about here was the number of students teachers were teaching, and this is another area where. I do get emails from teachers saying, oh, but I only have one student, but I only have three students. You know, I'm not like all those other teachers you're talking to. And the truth is, if that's you, you are absolutely like many of the teachers that I'm talking to regularly. You don't have to have 20, 30, 40, 100 students to take your profession seriously to do things like be part of things like Vibrant Music Teaching membership. It absolutely can be worth it to do things like that. And you can be just as much of a teacher, quote unquote, with just a few students, right? Maybe that's what fits your life and that's fine. So we had about 10% with only one to five students. And then we had, again, about 10% over 40 students. So. The rest of the cohort, 80%, is somewhere between 10 and 40. And that is as I would expect. Most teachers have, you know, that 15 to 30 kind of range of students as an average. But you're absolutely not in a small minority if you have just under five. That's not weird. Then this area is new. We looked more at age ranges this year. and this data will, I mean, all of it is skewed towards people who pay attention to Colorful Keys blog, who follow this podcast, who, you know, are going to be reached by our survey. Now, we absolutely do spread it, spread the word as much as we can with other bloggers, other people, but we're always going to be tied into who responds, right? And that's going to be the people we reach through all our different means. And so... I just wanted to highlight that here because I talk a lot about teaching preschoolers, so the data will tend to skew a little bit in that direction when we have these kinds of surveys. However, the numbers of teachers teaching younger students was much higher than I expected. So we had, let me see, 12% teaching three-year-olds as their youngest students, meaning we asked, what is the youngest age you teach? 12% teaching three-year-olds, almost 30% teaching four-year-olds and up, 30% again, five-year-olds and up, and then another 18% six-year-olds and up. So that means that nearly 90% of our teachers were taking on students under the age of seven. And seven is that standard age for beginning piano lessons. At least that's what I grew up with. Many people will also say age eight or age seven, right? That's the normal age to start lessons, that's the age I started at. So I did think this was really interesting. How many teachers are now taking students under the age of seven? Six and under and quite how many are taking on. Even three-year-olds, 12% is higher than I was expecting. That's really interesting. As I said, it'll skew that way because of my audience and the people who read the Color Peas blog because we talk about preschool teaching, for sure. It's still a very high number, though, and I hope you found that interesting, too. Then we looked at the groups and the cohorts of students that teachers are actually teaching. So that first number, that's about, If someone gets in touch with you, what's the minimum age you suggest? So if someone says, oh, my kiddo is three, do you take them or not? That's what that question is about. However, we then need to look at who teachers are actually teaching. Do they get many three-year-olds or do they just, they're open to it, but they don't get any? Do you see what I mean? So we had 17%, close enough to 20%, teaching students five and under. and then. 8% adults, so the rest are within the range of, say, average age students. Smaller proportion than I would have expected in the 13 to 18 range. I mean, I know there's a drop-off there, but 15% for teenagers is pretty low. So I think that drop-off might be worse than we're even perceiving, assuming those students started young and they're just dropping off. Because we have 24% between 10 and 12, and 36% between 6 and 9, right? So I know that there's a larger portion of students between the 6 to 12 range, primary school age, but that's a small number for teens for sure. Definitely take a look at the report on this, because we've actually broken this down in a couple of different ways there too. The next area we looked at was where we teach. Where are we actually doing this? As is probably to be expected if you're familiar with the piano teaching world, the music teaching world, almost 90%, 87 point something percent were self-employed. The self-employment figure, let's say, those teachers are not saying they're self-employed because technically they're a contractor and not employed by their boss at a music studio. They are actually independent is what we're talking about there. And then... Teachers are teaching, a huge amount of teachers teaching at home. So we've got a large portion who teach in a separate room in their house. That's almost 40% who have a dedicated teaching space. Jealous of those teachers. I'm going to have one of those hopefully soon. Then about 33%, 34% are teaching in a room in their house with a shared purpose. That's the camp I'm in right now teaching in your living room for example or in a room that has another shared purpose like a dining room a spare bedroom anything like that. Only seven percent going to students houses which I would have thought would be a lot higher. Another seven percent teaching in primary schools, secondary schools things like that and then just about 12 percent who actually rent a specific commercial location for that for their teaching. The lesson length was interesting so we've got 63% teaching 30 minutes as their primary lesson format. And I like to think that the trend is towards longer lessons because I really would prefer us all to be teaching. I don't want to impose anything on anyone, but I think most teachers would actually prefer to be teaching longer lessons and would have a better experience with teaching. And that the, most students would benefit from that as well with everything that we need to cover all the improv, all the games, everything that needs to fit in. Right. So I do think that the trend is going that way. I'm feeling positive about that, but we have to see that play out over the years. That's something that we just have to continue looking at. The number teaching purely or primarily individual lessons was higher than I expected, where over 90% of our respondents were teaching mostly one-on-one students. I knew that number would be high, don't get me wrong, But I didn't expect it to be quite as high as that, over 90%. I expected a bit more group representation there. Of the teachers who are not teaching just one-on-one or primarily one-on-one, small groups of students, just a few students at a time, was the most popular option there. And then partner lessons were the least popular. So generally, in other words, if teachers are going to teach more than one student at a time, they're going to go for three or four students not two, and also not more than six. So that's interesting that everyone tends to find that sweet spot. And it does make sense. If you're going to go into a group format, having just two students there doesn't really maximize your income or maximize the savings for the parents either. So it does make sense to go that little bit further. And then for buddy lessons, my preferred lesson type, we had just about 1.6%. So a really small portion there. However, that is a pretty new concept maybe it's not a new concept that's probably not fair i'm not you know inventing an entirely new form of lesson but it is something that i feel is trending a little bit more but it's always going to be a smaller niche of teachers who teach that way i think are you ready for the money here it comes okay the first thing we want to look at in terms of money is the income dependent in other words are teachers just doing this for a laugh Are they depending on this income or is it a significant portion? So about 35% said that this was just extra income for their household, meaning they don't rely on it at all. It's not an important source of income for their household. For whatever reason, they could be doing anything else instead. We didn't ask about that. But yeah, that's higher than I expected of teachers that said it was just extra. But I did expect that to be a solid portion, which is why we asked the question that way. And then about 20% said it was the primary source of income for their household. I would be in that camp. That teaching is their primary source of income. And then 44% are seeing this as an important secondary income. So I'd imagine in a lot of cases that's because they are teaching and their spouse makes more than them. So it's not the primary income, but it is an important secondary income. Then we had our areas of marketing. I put this in with our money section just because it is how we actually make the money back, right? How that actually, that money comes in. I specifically asked this as what other than word of mouth? Because everyone will answer word of mouth otherwise and it doesn't really help us learn anything because it's not a super actionable form of marketing. So the effective marketing that's working for teachers, over 30% said website, and another over 30% said Facebook. So those are the two biggest ones. Then about 20% said that local events are working for them. So that's awesome that in the era of non-COVID times when we can have in-person events, that you know, performing at things and going to markets or whatever they're doing, that that is working for them. That's great. Still, a portion of representation in the print media with flyers and posters being about 9%, which is great. And then Instagram was a very small portion there. It's not the, it's great for building rapport, Instagram, but it's not great for driving student inquiries. And so that is what I was expecting as a result there. It's great to see it solidly in the data. Then, in terms of how teachers see their job as a teacher, we're looking at More teachers seeing this as a part time job, but still about 30% seeing it as their full time gig. And then 14% said that it was their, they have a day job. So this is their side, their side job, as it were. We always break this down, or at least last year and this year anyway, we broke this down into of those teachers who said they teach full time, what does that mean? Right? Because it's a very, it's a very ambiguous term for someone who has all this stuff we do outside teaching, right? We don't just stop at the hours that we teach. And so at what point do you consider yourself full-time? That's a big question. So of the teachers who said they were teaching full-time, we had over 50% who teach more than 30 students. But a significant chunk, more than a third of the teachers who were teaching full-time, had 16 to 30 students right? So they're considering that time, the admin time and all of that that they spent outside of lessons. And then we had smaller chunks, but still some teachers who are only teaching a few students said they were full-time teachers. So it's very ambiguous and it's up to interpretation. I'm going to leave the specific income comparison for you to look at in the actual report because it's just more interesting that way to read those numbers yourself and break it down. We have broken it down by country where we can, again. And then we've left that other portion. We're mostly going also by currency there. So I made one section the eurozone. So that's an area where we could look kind of at Europe as a whole because we're looking at a common currency there. Not as Europe as a whole, I should be accurate. But we couldn't look at the eurozone, right? Not Europe so because it is comparable because at least we're on the same currency but we also compared that then to the income satisfaction ratings that people gave and I think that's really really interesting to dive into so definitely download the report if you want to look at that go to colorfulkeysie slash report the next area of the report is about method books and this one was the most challenging for me to put together in the report Because no matter how much I say pick your favorite or pick one, people want to say, yeah, yeah, but I I use so many. I use all of them. I use this one and this one. And I like this for this. People, Teachers wanted to tell me all about their opinions about method books in this section instead of just answering the question, which I understand. We're passionate about this. I get it. But breaking that down and reinterpreting some of the teacher's comments there to make that data talk to us. We had a significant majority with piano adventures. Again, we're talking about mostly piano teachers here, so that's what was reflected in the method books, but I would love to someday be breaking this down by flute methods and violin methods and stuff like that. We had a significant increase in the number on piano safari that was the biggest difference from the 2019 report so it'll be really interesting to look at that next year and see whether that's an overall trend or just happened you know because these things just happen it's a survey it's not perfect empirical data it is based on who shows up and who takes it so we'll see if that's an ongoing trend but if it is I'm delighted for piano safari because I think it is one of the best methods out there The next area we look at in the report is about teachers' confidence with teaching various things, which I think is really interesting to read through. But I wanted to give special mention to the creativity section. So about almost 50%, 45% said they compose and improvise with their students. That is fantastic news. We also had only a very small chunk who said they don't want to and they don't. So that's great. A huge portion of teachers are either composing or improvising with their students or both. And then over 25% said they don't now but they would like to in the future. So that's a great trend as well. And then the other area which is of extra interest to me is the aspect of teaching with games. So we had almost 50% saying, "Yep, they use games regularly." And again, this is biased data because it is based on most of the people answering our survey have heard of the colorful keys blog and the reason they have is maybe they're seeking out games right so i get that it's not that i'm saying this is perfect clean data on that front but i still love to see that high number of almost 50 percent saying yep we use games regularly to teach in my studio About 9% said they use them for special occasions, not my favourite, because I don't think they should be reserved as a treat. But I do get why that happens, because of shorter lessons, mostly. (laughs) Because we don't have time. And then about 40% said when we have time for them. So teachers are generally using some type of games, at least the respondents to our survey are. Two sections to talk you through briefly here but I do recommend you download the report yourself to read all of the details on all of these aspects. But I wanted to give special mention here to the recitals and exams aspect. This was one area that I was super passionate to include on our first survey last year and it was really great to see those numbers come back the first time and even better to see them come back the second time and say yep we were right. First of all our instinct was right before 2019 survey. And that data has held up again because it's really important when we're having these global teaching conversations, it's really important to understand where people are coming from. That's what this question is about for me. So, when we looked at recitals, it's relatively even between the US and outside the US. However, the numbers of teachers who do at least one recital a year is going to be higher in the US than outside. And this is anecdotally true and proven now twice in the survey, which is interesting. But even more so than that is the exam thing. Because we have so many teachers in the US, right? It's a big country. And so when we have these global conversations, there's these two opposing forces that often come into play and teachers in the US aren't realizing that exams are this huge feature positive or negative in most other countries and so that's why I wanted to highlight that and then the just equally the teachers outside the US aren't realizing that they're not even a thing in the US and so those teachers are coming from that perspective and if you don't understand that and you don't understand what the exams mean in those countries outside the US and how big of a role they play in determining what we teach when we teach it How parents react to music lessons. All of these factors. You think that this is just insignificant, I feel like. But it really matters. It's really important. And it really determines a lot about teaching. Even if your students don't do exams. If most students do, it changes things for how music lessons are perceived. So it's come through again. Exams in the US. Over 70% said their students never do exams. Never, no question of it, right? That's really high. And then we've got 63%, so almost the reverse. Or I should say, I should almost add those two together. So let's say it's over 70% of students, teachers outside the US have students doing exams either every year or sometimes. So the never and the, the never figure basically is flipped almost directly. And that's really important to understand every time you have a conversation that involves exams or other things that are influenced by the exam system in those Facebook groups, in those forums. Just have it in mind. Okay. last thing then, maybe what you've been waiting for, (laughs) the COVID-19 pandemic. How fun. Okay, so we did just ask a few questions here about online teaching and how teachers were going during the pandemic. So over 90% said they had done some online teaching at least due to the pandemic. So just just under 9% said they, they hadn't at all. And again, we didn't ask about why there, we were just interested about understanding those teachers who did teach online, more about that. So the teachers who weren't teaching online at all, we didn't follow up and ask why. Maybe we can do something about that in the future, but we do have to keep the survey brief or people won't fill it in, right? So then we asked about platforms. So Zoom, as you may have perceived, was the overwhelming majority of teachers. This was um, almost 80% said they were teaching mostly lessons on Zoom as their preferred choice. And then we had a mix of Skype and FaceTime and Messenger and other things like that. At the time of putting together the survey, Rock Out Loud Live was not as popular as it is now. We've since I've since had calls with, Mike from Rocket Loud Live, and I've done some reporting here on on the Colorful Keys YouTube channel and stuff like that. We didn't think to ask about it specifically on the survey at the time of putting it together because it just wasn't a factor right then. The next thing we asked about was the month's teaching primarily online. So you may have had some students in person, but how long were you teaching primarily in an online format? And we had a huge portion, over 40%, at five plus months. So most likely still teaching online at the time of this survey. And then a much smaller proportion, under 10%, who said it was less than one month that they were teaching online. So those are people people who were lucky to be in an area that was not overly affected and they were able to go back to teaching in person, which is great. Now, last really important thing I wanted to mention here was about the students quitting due to the online format, because this was a big concern for teachers, especially early on. The talk was all, oh, but if I do this, especially if schools are not online, if this and that and the other, are my students all gonna quit? And it turns out they weren't going to, and everything's fine. I'm sorry if you had a ton of students who quit due to economic factors or due to the online format or anything like that. And I'm not diminishing your experience. That is terrible and my heart goes out to you. And if there's anything we can do to help, please ask us. But the majority of teachers, their students stuck with them. They stuck with it. They stayed the course and they did the online lessons and they didn't quit. It didn't cause them to quit. So we had over 40% saying no one quit due to the online format. One to two students was about 30%. I'd be in that camp. I did have two students at Keys who the online format just didn't work for them. And so they had to put lessons on hold. And I get that. It's not a major factor in your studio if you're teaching quite a few students. And then the breakdown is in the report after that. But I wanted to highlight that because it was such a big concern and maybe it's still a big concern for you right now. So if it is, know that most likely it will be fine. Students won't quit. People still want music. They still want things to do. They still want their kids to learn. And it's all going to be okay. So on that wonderful note, we're going to wrap it up there. I hope you found this rundown useful and helpful. I know it's a longer one than usual, but I wanted to really give you a taste for all the different things you can learn from this report and my perspectives on them. So you can get the full report at colorfulkeys.ie. I hope you'll go grab it. And I hope you'll remember to check back in with us next year to fill out the survey if you didn't do it this year because we want to keep expanding this. And as you'll see, we make this data freely available to you in a beautiful format so that it can get out there. We just want it out there in the world. So make sure to go grab the report enjoy it, and I'll see you next time. If you liked this episode, you would absolutely love Vibrant Music Teaching membership. We have the support and the training you need to take your teaching further. Join us today by going to vmt.ninja and signing up.